If you've never met Bruno, he's one of the smiliest, happiest dudes. Uh, Camilla's, they're just amazing people. Uh, they were back here on sabbatical for about a year and got to actually worship with us on a weekly basis. So uh, we're excited to be able to pray for them. God's doing good work there. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really, really great to be with you this morning. Um, well, according to legend, um, on December 31st, uh, 1899, yes, 1899, uh, there was a passenger vessel named the uh, SS Waramu, and it was traveling quietly by night in the midst of a trip from Vancouver to Australia. Everything was going well, and um, the navigator at one point comes to the um, comes to the captain and, uh, and lets him know that according to where the star positioning, they find themselves at, let me be exact here, latitude zero degrees, 31 minutes north, longitude 179 degrees, 30 minutes west. Now, I know you all know what that means because, you know, you're cartographers and stuff. Um, but the first mate looked at the captain and said, Captain Phillips, apparently is quite the cantankerous gentleman, you know what this means. We are nearly at the place where the equator crosses the international date line. And so the captain said, all right, let's do this. They altered their course, changed their trajectory and their pace a little bit and found themselves sitting at the equator in their vessel on the Weramu as midnight struck. At midnight, the Weramu lay on the equator at exactly the point where it crossed the international date line. Now, the consequences of this very strange, bizarre moment in history, in navigational history, is that the forward part of the ship was in the southern hemisphere in the middle of summer, and the rear part of the ship was in the northern hemisphere in the middle of winter. On top of that, the date on the aft part of the boat was well, December 31st, 1899. The date on the front side of the boat was January 1st, 1900. So the, the Weramu was in two different days, two different months, two different seasons, two different years, and two different centuries at the very same time. Now, whether or not this played itself out exactly like this has been a debate for a long time. And there's experts on both sides that say, absolutely, and others who say, well, we're not so sure. But we, what we do know is that if you were navigating on that boat on that day, this strange navigational anomaly, um, the passengers on the deck had a choice, right? They could have basically chosen to leave the rear of the boat and step out of today into tomorrow just by walking forward. Eventually it would have come to them, yes, that is true, but by walking just from the rear of the boat to the front of the boat, they could have stepped into their future, into not only a new year, but a new century as some of the first people to embrace it. Now, no matter what your calendar says today, which I guess it says the same thing for all of us, where you find yourself today, what I believe is that you too can step into tomorrow today. And you're saying, how is that possible? We're not on a ship. Um, but one of the things that God's given us is the gift of dreaming. It's actually something that is candidly an important spiritual practice. Most people have to learn it. 
But when we talk about dreaming, I'm not talking about the, you know, go to bed and have a dream and wake up in the morning. I'm not talking about Cinderella, a wish that you make when you're fast asleep. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a kind of dream, a a God dream type of invested infused vision that helps you live, that helps you live wide awake. So dreaming is, is part of what it means to be human. You can't help it, right? You're already, you've been dreaming about moments. You can be in the middle of a stormy day and, and cold and, and sitting outside, and you can imagine yourself in a different context. You can imagine yourself on a beach probably, right? So, so we have this natural, innate reality as being, well, no other create, creature of God does this other than, than us. Dreaming is part of what we do. We imagine, we envision what can be. And having had our heart shifted and trained and remade through the Spirit as believers, we have this unique ability as believers to imagine with God what tomorrow could be and how it could be different than today. But here's the thing. When we stop dreaming, and some of us stop dreaming at times, we find ourselves drifting into either either fantasizing or just escaping, surviving with our lives. Too many people will choose that, and we don't want to choose that. We don't want to choose to fantasize or survive or just survive or fantasize. We don't want to be walking through life as zombies by day or insomniacs by night. No. We want to be fully alive people, and God's given us a way to do that. And he wants to dream and to plant. I'm sorry, he wants to dream and plan rather than have us survive and fantasize. And that's why today we're going to walk through those two spiritual practices, if you will, of both dreaming and planning with our life. And it's actually precisely what we find God doing in Jeremiah chapter 29, which is where we've been hanging out for this particular series. So the past few weeks, if you've been with us in the middle of our series on purpose, delighting and designing... Um, discovering and delighting in God's calling. Through this past series, we've been, I've been encouraging you to, to participate with the Spirit in discovering and, and then stepping into your one-of-a-kind God-purposed design. The first few weeks, we talked about the fact that you have this unique reality of being designed and destined by God on purpose. And we talked about rejecting the reality of the false versions of ourselves instead of having to have our ears attuned to God, to what His voice says is true about who we are. And then last week, I invite you to just take hold of the place of God's calling grace by trying to think through and to, to be really be able to, to begin to name both your calling and particularly your convictions, your values, what matters most. And this week, we want to take another step in this journey by inviting us into the dreaming, the visioning with God as we step forward. So I have to say from the beginning that today's passage is... Well, it contains one of the most overused verses in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I just said it out loud and you're like, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Well, of course, I knew an NIV. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. See, it's one of those things like you think you know it in your mind and then you're up here and you're like, right? Um... But how many of you have heard of this verse? How many of you have like seen it like, I don't know, crocheted on a pillow at your grandma's house? Right? How many of you have like, were the, the, maybe some of you were the person who like, in your yearbook quote moment, you're like, I got this. I'm gonna drop some Jeremiah 29, 11 on my classmates. And then it's in there like nine times, right? 
It's just this great verse that is regularly and consistently taken out of context. This is verse that's been used to justify the American dream, right? Of course, it was never intended to do that. Some preachers like to pull this verse out of context and love to claim that just saying yes to Jesus means the equivalent of walking this easy path towards health and, and wealth, and that is not what this verse is talking about. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, today I want you to hear this passage in context, and um, I think if we do, that we'll be able to live in a whole new way. Now, the setting of the verses we're going to read, and of course, Jeremiah 29, 11 falls in the middle there, is really critical. Uh, for years, and of course, you know, Jeremiah's, the writing of Jeremiah spans many, many years. Jeremiah for years has been prophesying to Israel, who's been in rebellion against God for a long time, like running away from God. And of course, this is the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's been prophesying, saying, listen, if you won't turn from your ways, destruction is coming your way. Devastation is on its way. Turn from your ways. There's been no listening ear. For years now, no one has heeded the words that God has put in Jeremiah's mouth to speak to them. His call's been thwarted. We talked about that last week. In fact, they didn't just stop their ears, right? They actually tried to stop him, throwing him in literally in the stalks just to shut him up. So by the time we get to Jeremiah 29, well, the inevitable has begun to happen. King Nebuchadnezzar, has come in with an army because Israel has rejected him and the king of Israel has said, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore. And he's brought his army and he's conquered the country. He's laid siege to the cities and he's been winning the war. Nebuchadnezzar deposes the king and he replaces him with, well, what he thinks is going to be a more of a puppet king and he basically tries to break Israel's ability to rebel in the future, and he does so by basically taking all the best, the brightest, the nobles, the, 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 the leaders, the influencers within the country. He rallies them all together, about 10,000, and he takes them off to Babylon. The exile had begun. But Jeremiah is one of those that's left back in Judah. He's not taken off. He probably didn't have a great reputation as the guy who was in stocks. And so he's left with the rest of the population. That's been stripped of all of its leaders and all of its nobles. And at this moment, Jeremiah has been, of course, he's been, he's been talking about destruction. He's been talking about judgment from the Lord. But in this moment, his message changes. In these verses, Jeremiah now gives a word of, of hope and of grace and of mercy. And it's a letter that he sends to the folks, to that 10,000 who have been taken off into captivity in Babylon. Now, this is the lowest part of Israel's history. It's going to get worse, but at, so far, this is the lowest part of their history. And it's maybe the most sit miserable situation for these these Jewish captives, and he calls them in the midst of this time, Jeremiah and the Lord call them to both dream and to plan. Seemingly the worst possible moment. He speaks into their today, and he tries to call them into a tomorrow that they can't see. On top of that, there's false prophets that are trying to sell a fantasy. You're going to see that in a second. Jeremiah calls God's people instead to God's dream. God's people... And of course, as we said, people, we can tend to confuse God's dreams with, with fantasies. That's why in Jeremiah 29, we're going to kind of walk through three different principles, three different ideas 
distinguishing God-shaped dreams and human fantasies so we can learn what it looks like for us to walk with God into his vision for our lives. So let's look at Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Remember, this is a letter from the Lord to the people who've been taken in exile. The God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant vineyards and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may have sons and daughters. Multiply here and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare you will find, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to their, the dreams that they dream for. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from among all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's an amazing passage. First thing we're going to look at is, is that God-shaped dreams face reality. Fantasies deny reality. God-shaped dreams, they face reality, whereas fantasies just deny reality. A God-shaped vision for our life starts right where we actually are. We don't start dreaming when we've finally gotten our act together, when we've been able to work our way out of our mess or the dumpster fire that we've made of our lives. Instead, our God-shaped dream for our lives starts by facing the current reality fully and honestly because it's only in reality that God can meet us with love and hope and faith that's what the gospel convinces us of that's what the gospel makes possible you see you see God's love leads us to deal with what is no matter what's happened the gospel tells us that God loves us where we are and where we find ourselves. That because of Jesus, there's nothing that you can do that, make you, that would make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to ha- that would make God love you any less. So we start by accepting and receiving that love. That's what the gospel makes possible. And as we, as we begin to abide more and more in that love, well, we begin to regain hope. When things are broken. Things aren't what we imagine them to be. They begin to regain hope because... Though God loves us as we are, he loves us enough not to leave us where we are. 
Uh, the first seeds of hope oftentimes can be masquerading as frustration, frustration that is really oftentimes just hope in disguise. It's, it's not what it seems to be. I just want life to be different. I don't understand what's happening. But hope-fueled discontent looks at our lives and asks, is what is what has to be? Is what is the current reality of my life what has to be? And as we wrestle honestly with God with that question, what is begins to give way to what could be. And finally, as hope begins to rise, God begins to speak. Our ears are now attuned to him, and as God begins to speak about, about what can be, our, our hope turns to faith. As he starts telling us what can be and, and letting us see a vision, a picture of what can be, as our hope begins to turn to faith, which is why Romans 10, 17, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing a word from the Lord. So we believe him. Now listen, the, the progression of, of love to hope to faith is a far cry from naive optimism. It's not, it's not Pollyanna thinking. It means that we can face our current reality knowing that we are not defined by our worst moment, by our worst decision, that we're not confined by our worst day, by our worst week, or our worst month. It means that no matter where we find ourselves right now, that God is still active in our lives. That no matter where you find yourself today, that God is still active in your life. Now, for Israel... This meant that God was with them right in the middle of the exile. While the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, they're, they're peddling the fantasy that any day now, any day, we're about, to, we're about to go back, guys, any day, Jeremiah instead invites them to face reality by telling, that, telling them that their time in exile is actually going to be 70 years. That was the reality. So that's a stark message, but yet simultaneously to this difficult message, we see in verse 5 and 6 that Jeremiah also reminds God's people that God's not given up on his dream for them. We see verse six, in verse 5, the Lord says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and, and eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Listen, multiply there and do not decrease. Does, does that command sound familiar? If it does, it's because it echoes the first couple pages of the Bible. When God looks at our first parents and says, this is your mandate, Increase, multiply, fill the earth. And he tells this to Adam and Eve prior to the fall, but then after the fall, after Genesis 3, he repeats this to, to Noah, to, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through Moses, to the children of Israel. Increase and, and multiply. Even in the midst of the futility that followed the fall, God still had a vision for his people. God still had a dream about what would be true about the people of God. Now, these are the very words that God repeats in Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. So, 
Israel doesn't have to deny their reality because God's in it with them. He's in their reality. They don't have to fantasize about what could be because God is still dreaming about what will be. Right in the midst of their mess, God's asking them to begin dreaming in the midst of facing the reality they're in. Now, um, maybe a helpful illustration of this, there's a, a, I mean, maybe one of the most famous business books ever is Good to Great, right? Jim Collins, many of you maybe read this book. And he, um, he's interviewing a bunch of different people and he's talking about like, what makes great companies great? And one of the people he ends up interviewing is kind of an illustration of one of the characteristics is a gentleman by the name of Admiral Jim Stockdale. Now, Admiral Stockdale, Rear Admiral Stockdale, was um, one of the earliest captives uh, in the Vietnam War. He was actually the highest ranking naval officer to be captured during the Vietnam War, and he ended up spending seven years in the Hanoi Hilton, which if you don't know the Hanoi Hilton, it's no Hilton. Now, in his captivity, he was able to preserve in the midst of torture and just incredibly difficult treatment his dignity and the lives of many of his soldiers. And so when he got released and after the war, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so Collins is asking him questions, and one of the questions he asks him in the midst of this, he says, listen, how did you make it through this unbelievably difficult set of circumstances? And what Stockdale told Collins is that Part of what allowed him to survive was that he never gave up believing that in the end, he and his comrades would prevail. That in the end, he and his comrades would prevail. And that this would be a defining moment in their life somehow. So Colin said, wow, so, so, so who didn't survive? And Stockdale's answer surprised Collins. He said, those who didn't survive were the optimists which perplexed Collins. He says, well, wait a minute. I just heard you say you had this belief that one day you would prevail. Isn't that optimism? And Stockdale said, no, that's not the same. He says, I did say that, but he said, don't ever confuse a deep belief that you will win or that you will prevail with naive optimism. So he said, the optimists, this is what he says, the optimists in the Hanoi Hilton would believe, you know what? We're going to be released by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and they were not released. And so they're like, oh, you know what? We're going to be released by Easter. And then, and then days would go by and Easter would come and Easter would go and they were still in prison. And he said, their naive optimism led them to despair. When all of their internal promises of naive optimism never came through, they died of a broken heart. They gave up. Scottsdale concluded, he said, you have to be able to look at the brutal facts while having a deep belief that in the end you will prevail. And of course, Collins takes this truth, calls it the Scottsdale, um, Scottsdale paradox. And it's what he saw in companies. And so he wrote it in his book, and it's true of companies, it's true of people like, um, like General Scottsdale, Admiral Scottsdale. But what's true of them is also true in our, in our faith with God. Uh, dreaming should never be confused with naive optimism. 
Naive optimism is fantasy, and fantasy always, always lets us down. But dreaming actually starts by facing the brutal facts. Having a vision for our life that is coupled with God's vision for our life is first of all brought up by, by facing the, br the brutal facts. But it does so from the bedrock of love, hope, and faith. Those three create a deep belief that in the end, we will prevail and that God will be with us. And so my question to you is, in what ways are, are you denying reality? What, what facts about your life, what, what facts about your decision, about your trajectory, do you need to honestly face with God and maybe with others? Well, God-shaped dreams face reality. Secondly, God-shaped dreams, they work through reality, whereas fantasies try to escape reality, to pretend like they're not there. When God has a vision for our lives and we step into it, it starts by facing our reality, what it really is, where things really are right now. But it doesn't end there. A God-infused vision works through reality. And in chapter 29, Jeremiah describes the tension that Israel has to deal with in Israel's new life in Babylon. You see, on the one hand, they needed to believe that God would one day bring them back to Jerusalem and restore them and restore to them everything that they'd lost. And we see this here in God's promise in verse 14. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And listen, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And they needed to believe that God would restore them, yes. Yes, it would take 70 years, but one day they would return. So their stay in Babylon was temporary, not permanent. On the other hand, for those 70 years, well, they would live in Babylon. And Babylon, they would need to settle down. We read that earlier. Build houses, have children, get married. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever felt caught between Babylon and, and Jerusalem. You're dreaming about Jerusalem, but maybe you feel stuck in Babylon. At this point in Jeremiah's prophecy, God tells his people that even though they, they, are, they are stuck here, he still has a dream for Israel. But in the meantime, he has a plan for Babylon. In fact, God says that his people's flourishing is tied to the eventual, it's not tied strictly to their eventual return to Jerusalem, it's actually tied to the flourishing of Babylon. He wants his people to flourish in Babylon too. As a matter of fact, he tells them that their flourishing is connected to the very city, to the very people that have taken them away, that have dragged them into exile. And God tells them to seek and to plan for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon even while they dream of one day returning to Jerusalem. This is candidly just a hard-to-swallow truth for Israel. That the road that God accomplishes his dreams for Israel's life would be filled with a whole bunch of ups and downs. 
struggles and difficulties, successes and hopes. And let's be honest, if that's, that's true of them, it's true of us. Every single one of us wants a straight line, as close to a straight line to the dreams and visions we have for our lives. That even we have from God for our lives. We want our future to happen right away, right now. And the reality is that most God-shaped dreams rarely proceed in a straight line and they almost never happen on our timetable. Instead, God uses the ups and downs in our lives to make us the kinds of people who can handle the scope and the scale of the vision and dream that God has for our lives. See, the question for us is, is not, does God want to bring us and bring about our flourishing? The question is, can we handle God's flourishing in our lives? There's a book called uh, Preparing for Heaven that was written as a, actually it was written with Dallas Willard, right? Um, but Dallas wrote it with another guy. And we're talking about what it means to be the kind of people that are preparing and prepared for heaven. That's not a shocking experience because it's so counter to what we've experienced here. And this is some of what we're describing. It's a hard to swallow truth. Can we handle God's flourishing in our lives? Most, time, most of the time, We'll take the straight line. But when we take the straight line, when we want the straight line, when we demand the straight line, the very things that God would give us to bless us oftentimes end up being turned into curses. It's the reality of what happens to people who win the lottery. People who win the lottery are all bankrupt five years later. It is almost statistically impossible for that not to be true. So if you play the lottery, don't play the lottery. You see, because the people who win the lottery are not prepared for what they receive, and so it, everything that has been true of them up to that moment, is, they're not prepared to handle it, and it destroys their lives. Now, I'm not saying that the good things that God has for you or the things that he's laid out for you are going to destroy your lives. It just means that as God prepares a place, as God moves towards a vision, oftentimes it's the ups and downs that form us. It's the ups and downs in our life that builds the kind of character so that we can handle the vision that God is dreaming and putting in for us. I want to get a visual for you. Norma Street's always telling me, you got to get more visuals, Matt. So here's a visual, and it's a science visual, Norma. You're going to love this. Um, okay, so there's a, there's a guy. This is, this is the visual for your life as you think about how am I formed? How do I become the kind of person? Uh, there's a, a guy. He's a uh, junior high physics teacher on YouTube, which is just awesome. His name is Bruce uh, Yaney. And what Bruce does, and I'll show you the video in a second, but he, he uses a, a ball, a two, well, two balls on two different tracks. And uh, the conducts this experiment for his students, and, and both of the tracks begin and end at the same place, right? So they both start and they end at the same place. One of them he calls the high track, and it basically is just a straight line between the two, right? So a straight line. The second one he calls the lower track, and it actually has all these ups and downs. This lower track is actually seven inches longer than the upper track, okay? So it's actually longer, has all these ups and downs, and the question he asks his students is, which ball will get there faster? So class... I'm not going to ask you yet. We're going to watch. Which ball will get there faster? All right, let's watch.
What a great video, right? Now, how many of you thought that the longer track was going to be the one that won? I mean, if, if, if a pastor's talking about it, it's going to be the thing you don't think it's going to be, right? It's like a comedian. It's like, of course it's not going to be the thing we all think. But does it kind of blow your mind? You're like, wait, how does this work? How does this play itself out? Everyone knows that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So how does this undulated, longer track get the ball there faster? Well, there's physics reasons for it, and because some of you are going to want to know, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Basically, the reason why this happens is the physics behind it is, is that there's a difference between the potential and kinetic energy, the movement energy. And so on the high track, most of the ball's energy is just stored or remains in potential energy, whereas on the up and down track, or the lower track, that potential energy gets actually turned into kinetic energy, which means that the ball is actually going faster on the down and on the bottom parts than the upper ball, which means it gets there faster. Even though it's seven inches longer, the ball gets there first. Now, this is how our lives work. We all want the upper track of our lives. We want straight lines to the great story, to the perfect vision, to the dream that we believe God has for us, and we want to get there now. We want to get there quick. We want to get there straight. And we don't want the ups. Well, we'll take the ups, but we really don't want the downs. We believe that the ups and downs of our lives are in a sense a deferring of the dream that God has for us. And the truth, the ups and downs are the very thing that God uses to build potential energy in our lives for godly movement. They're not the deferring of the dream. No, it's what defines God's dream in us and to us. Loved ones, it's in the ups and downs that God makes us the kind of people who can handle what he has for our lives. Now to navigate the ups and downs of our lives, we need not only dream, but we need to be able to plan intentionally, to be purposeful. And this is exactly what God gives the exiles in Jeremiah 29. God has a dream for the exiles to be able to one day return to Jerusalem. He said it, you heard it. But he also has a plan for how they're going to live in Babylon today. So he's holding on to the dream with one hand of what can be in Jerusalem while planning on the other in the midst of the difficulties of what are and what is. And, and holding those two things is very difficult for most of us. Now, I would say probably in this room we have kind of a split, right? Some of us are dreamers, and some of us are planners. So all, all the planners, go ahead and raise your hand. It's, it's, it's particularly healthy for the dreamers to repent. Now, dreamers are skeptics. I'm sorry, dreamers are skeptical of, of planners, and, and, and most planners are, are very skeptical of dreamers. Planners are skeptical of dreamers because planners have never seen a dream that can actually turn into reality, right? It's like, oh, there's this grand thing, but it's not going to work. And here's the 23 reasons why it's not going to work. My kids dubbed me Dream Crusher <laughs> for a season of my life. And the reason was is because 
they would say something like, I remember Haley was probably, I don't know, 16, and she's like, I want to be a missionary to London. And in about three sentences, I made her realize, I don't think that's going to work. <clears throat> I mean, you know, I'm a missionary kid, and I'm like shooting down missionary dreams of my kids because I'm like, wait, but hold on. Like, let's have we thought this through. Do you speak the language, you know? That was a geography test. Okay, good. Um, we don't believe that it can be executed, and so the skeptics in us that are hyper-planners say, this can't, this can't be, there's no way to make it happen. And there's the dreamers are skeptical of planners because we've never seen a plan that seems like it's God-size inspired. It would make us want to move, make us want to risk it's just a big to-do list, it seems like, and so there's skepticism. But here, God tells his people that he has both a dream and he has a plan. And it's the combination of a dream and a plan that helps us work through the reality and through reality instead of just trying to escape it. So, are you dreaming and never planning movement? Are you planning but not a real dream, not a real vision, not a God-sized investment in what he could make you be, what he has in mind, what he's whispered to you. What... Well, thirdly, God-shaped dreams become reality. God-shaped dreams become reality, whereas fantasies just leave us stuck in a lesser reality. I think this is the, the final difference between the difference between a God-shaped dream is that it, it actually comes to pass. See, because God's dreams are ultimately promises, commitments, that he is going to work out what he is going to do for his glory because he is on the move. In the end, if we choose fantasy, we end up stuck exactly where we began, nowhere. But when God's vision becomes a reality because we move into it, step towards it, like Israel proves, 70 years later, the exiles returned. 70 years later, the exiles returned. They made it back to Jerusalem. There's an entire segment of the Bible that articulates the reality of what God was doing and what God changed, what God made possible. One of the implications, by the way, of what God did in the downturns of being exiled, those of you who've read your Bibles, you know that what God's taking on over the history of the Old Testament with the Israelites is one central thing, right? And it's what? It's idolatry. They're always running to, a, to another God to say, no, you save us, you rescue us, you make us okay. After the exile, Israel will struggle with multiple things, self-righteousness, hyper-religiousness, They'll still do some intermarriage stuff. We saw that in Nehemiah, but, but Israel never struggles with idolatry again. They never go to the pagan idolatry drawn in ever again on the other side of the exile. That down made them the kind of nation, the kind of people that that was no longer going to be the case for. Because God had a dream that there would be a people who would not be idolatrous, that they would love the Lord their God with all their hearts, all their souls, all their minds, and all their strength. In the middle of God's dream being delayed, seemingly, we see stories of people like Daniel and Esther who live out the reality of God's calling in their place, in their context. 
as they wait for the ultimate vision to come true. Well, in the Christian tradition, we, we have a word for what we've been talking about, and it's the word confession. See, as Christians, we have two types of confession, right? We have a confession of sin, and we have a confession of faith. Our confession of sin is an articulation, a, a confession of, well, what is. What, what is maybe broken, what's not right, what's needed to change the good, the, the bad, and the ugly. And it's what we confess to the Lord and to one another. And then we have a, a confession of faith, which is when we confess what will be according to what God has said. What we believe will be true and a clear plan and a God-shaped dream is a confession of faith. And so today I want to invite you into confession to face reality with God, to work through the ups and downs of your life, of the reality by His grace, and through spirit-infused dreaming and planning to dare to see the reality that God is speaking, whispering, and telling you become reality. And it's not. What's fascinating about how God works is that this invitation is not for you alone. That just like Israel, what's at stake is, well, the Babylon about you. That as you flourish, so flourish those who are about, those who are around, those that are connected to you. As you prosper, so prosper those about us. And this is what leads us to the table this morning. So we come to the table, in many ways, we're actually confessing. We're confessing a confession of sin and a confession of faith with, in a sense, our actions. A confession of sin, of course, a declaration that we were so broken, so sinful, that, that he had to die. That his blood and, 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 and his body broken for us, that he had to do it because we were that broken. And our confession of faith is that he loved us enough, that we're valuable enough to him that he would choose to die. And then invites us into both repentance at this table and trust. Repentance of the things that we're not facing reality about, that we're not living honestly through. And then trust that God in his purposes will work out his perfect plan in our lives. That he will accomplish those things as we participate with him, as we give ourselves to him. And he'll do so for his glory. He'll do so for our flourishing. And amazingly, he'll do so for the flourishing of every single person around us. That is our confession as we come to both receive the body and the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, you say that from the very foundations of the world, you had us on your mind. See, that Christ was crucified from the foundations of the world. That, that both the need in light of our brokenness, sin, and rebellion, as well as the, the dream, the vision, the, the, uh, the promise of what it looked like for us to be people who are restored and remade in you was in your heart. And over the course of history, human history, you have played that out until the day that Christ died. And now we stand here on the other side of the cross as thankful men and women who can with confidence, because we know this tells us that we're loved and, 
and have a hope for a future that is certain can have faith in the fact that you are inviting us forward. And so we want to tune our ear to you. We want to be attentive to your voice. We want to be the kind of people who give ourselves to what you have for us. And so, Lord, would you do so in us? As we come and receive these elements, Lord, would you help us be the kind of people who are just honest and true about where we really are? The ways in which we're escaping reality, fantasizing about what could be that has nothing to do with what you've called us to. Would you invite us to face reality as it is? And then, Lord, would you make us the kind of people who trust you as we step towards what you're inviting us into, as we step in more faithfully and courageously into our calling, as we make intentional and purposeful plans, as we, as we don't just think about hope as a strategy, but actually intentionally choose, that we take real steps forward with our lives in a way that brings about your kingdom that is waiting for us. Lord, thank you that you will accomplish every single one of your purposes that none of them will fall down, none of them will fall dead. No, that you will accomplish your purposes. Lord, we want to be a part of that. So by your grace and mercy, would you do so in us as we find ourselves in front of these elements today, Lord, would you refresh our hearts, remind us of your goodness, remind us of your love. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your great meal. And so come and receive the body and blood of Christ for you.